Welcome to Course Stories, produced by the Instructional Design and New Media Team of EdPlus at Arizona State University. In this podcast, we tell an array of course design stories alongside other ASU Online designers and faculty. On today's course story, we want to get all of these students that are in trouble and they're not asking for help because a lot of them won't to have the experience of what would normally be like us walking around a lab where you're looking over shoulders and you'd see a student that has like struggle face and they, <laughs> they you can tell either like the pressure is just, just about to, they're just about to snap or about to give up and you're like, oh, what you working on? What's going on here? Nice. Right? And you want to have that conversation. We want to have, that's part of the manifesto, right? How, yeah. What would you do if they were sitting right here? So how do we get that in online? And I think it has this effect on students that maybe they feel less alone in the course once they, once they know that someone can see what they're doing. And if someone's taking the time to look at what they're doing, that shows that someone cares. Hi, I'm Mary Loader, an instructional designer from ASU Online. I'm Ricardo Leone. I'm a media specialist at the same place. Yeah, we work together. Let's get on with the show. Okay. Oh my God, it's been so long. Wait, 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 wait. Did you move the mic or something? Oh, did I? I Can you scoot it a bit closer? Shoot, sorry. There we go. Okay. Hi, Mary. Hi, Ricardo. How's it going? It's okay. Did you hear the news? What's the news? They're tearing down the vine. Oh, yeah. I mean, but our last episode, we were at the Vine, like it wasn't even that long ago, and now they're just going to tear it down? Yeah. I well, guess. I mean, the last time, our last episode of last season one, right. we also talked about all these like big plans about doing interim episodes, and we didn't do that. So okay, fair enough. I think, if anything, it's our fault that the Vine is being torn down. It's because we didn't follow through on the we interim episodes. We didn't follow episodes. through on the interim episodes, That's and we fair. apologize to you listeners and how this has affected your lives as Gosh, well. Gosh, you were looking forward to it, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> us too we'll get to it so mary let's remind people what the show's all about oh guys welcome this is course stories it's a, a podcast that's what it is mm-hmm. and we talk about courses and the design of courses and we do that alongside the actual instructional designers the faculty members the media specialists and give you a behind the scenes look at asu online and the courses that we offer yeah not only will we be doing that but we'll also be interjecting with some info and and other things we've, we've even for this episode we've got a whole separate interview with uh, jill roder that's oh, going to be included I'm in it so happy she said that she would come do this with us so mary what, what do we have to look forward to this season well, we definitely are going to have a different season than last season. So we will be talking to Alicia Montalvo later in the season around her course for fitness and flexibility. Very mm. cool course, but yes. also extremely cool design decisions that could be used anywhere. So mm-hmm. highly recommend tuning back in for that. Also, we're going to be talking with Christy Rorschach about misinformation and society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, that could be fun. I mean, it, it is fun. I was in the recording and just time travel wise, I know it's fun, guys. Right. Uh, tune in. And then we're also going to be speaking with um, some people from GIS and probably going to be eating or drinking with some uh, Italian professors and discussing food and the how it's Mediterranean so lifestyle. Yes, that's going to be my favorite episode, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure too. <laughs> and then who knows, but right now we are going to be talking with Ryan Muth and Phil Miller about CSE 110, which is Introduction to Programming. Okay, so like computer programming. Yes. And this is like the class that everybody has to take. Oh, wow. This is the one that people call the weeder, Mm -hmm. the weeding class, Mm -hmm. right? Like you have to go through it and you need to know these concepts because everything else builds on them. And so you need to do well because everything else builds on these concepts. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard. Yeah. So they have to make it kind of universally accessible to everyone. Yes. And interactive because, I mean, I don't want to fall asleep reading tons of books. So it's completely interactive. It's really cool. We actually moved this to uh, be the first episode of the season because we wanted to have it as a big shining example. And yeah, so, so let's get onto it. What do you think? I'm in. Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm Mary Loader. And uh, if you're listening to this, I hope you've listened to other episodes and you probably know that I'm one of the uh, members of the instructional design and new media team at Ed Plus and also the co-host of Course Stories with Ricardo Leone. And today I'm also the interviewer, along with two amazing faculty out of Sky, the School for Computing and Augmented, augmented, augmented intelligence. intelligence. Thank you for closing that for me. 
Uh, let's have you both introduce yourselves. Uh, my name is Ryan Muth. I'm a senior lecturer in academic and student affairs and um, the SKY, the uh, School of Computing and Augmented Intelligence. I've been teaching for 13 years. I'm mainly focused in freshman engineering and intro computer science and embedded systems. And I'm Phil Miller. I'm also a senior lecturer uh, in academic and student affairs in the Fulton Schools of Engineering. Uh, I've been teaching computer science courses for a little over 20 years now. Introducing computer science and programming to new students is my absolute passion. I know this to be true. It is not even a small statement. A true passion coming out of you, Phil, in all elements of this course. And you as well, Ryan, but let's be honest. <laughs> Phil, you've got like the passion cake. A little, little maniacal, maybe. I mean, maybe. in the best way. But also, boundaries are good. We're going to make sure that you would have <laughs> some self-care when it comes to Inscribe. Cool. <laughs> Well, I feel very lucky in multiple ways. One, that you both said yes to coming to speak on the podcast today, because I think the more faculty who hear about your experience and your passion, the better. You two are exemplars in my book. I really have appreciated working with you over the last year and a half doing uh, the redesign for this course. And this course has been around for a long time, so we'll have a lot to talk about. Um, But very, very cool that I get to interview both. And even cooler that I got to be a part of the project. So big shout out to Jill Roeder for mm-hmm. looping me in when she was like, okay, I'm tapping out. I'm going to a different project. I'm going to tap you in. And I was like, <laughs> yes, put me in. Can't wait for so many reasons. We're super excited to be here and talk about this class that we've been working on for uh, a while. six years, seven, yeah, six that, years, something like that. A true passion project. Yeah. <laughs> Truly. You can, it comes through in so many places. That's, that's obvious to me. And I'm sure to your students. So tell us about this course. Like, what's the history of the course? So this is CSE 110 Principles of Programming. And it's really an introduction to programming for people that have never taken a programming class before. And uh, sort of an opening to a career in programming and just to make it sort of approachable for, for everybody. This is one of those required courses in the program, correct? Yeah, for, for computer science majors and actually a lot of other um, disciplines around campus, it's a required course for a lot of upper level classes. Yeah, absolutely. And it lives in many spaces at ASU. So it lives at ASU Online. That's why you're on the podcast today. But it also lives in our universal learner courses. That's a lot to say. Yeah. ULC, that's what we call it instead. Yeah. It lives on campus in a hybrid form. Any other ways that this course lives? out in the ethers? <laughs> right now, n- no, but in the future, yes. I mean, this all fits with our long-term goal of making this a high-quality, accessible course that gives an authentic college-level experience introduction to computer science and programming for everyone. Right now, that's everyone at ASU. Mm-hmm. But in the future, we'd like to expand it to the community colleges and high schools and anyone else who wants to use the course as well. This would be a great high school course for students who have that kind of mindset and want to get started before they come here. And I'm sure some actually do in our universal learner course design. Oh, yeah. We've uh, had a whole, we had a whole uh, high school class go through it, I think, the last cool. time that we ran it. The teacher was in the class with her 30 students. That's so and they cool. And they would send us like little like Q&A things and say, hey, my student is struggling with this and, and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's really awesome to see even now they're just sort of adapting to it and trying it out and figuring out how, how it works for a lot of different populations. Well, a lot of different populations means this must take all of your time unless you have a strategy. So hopefully you'll share some of the strategies you've put into place because this course has lived for a very long time and gone through multiple iterations. Um, It's currently under an iterative design using very specific tools and under unique partnerships. So um, feel free at any time to talk about those and the experiences of adopting new technology because that's always a scary space for anybody. And you both just jump right in. Well, I would, I would, I would say we don't jump right in. We did when we first started um, on this course in what 2016, mm-hmm. and and we were reaching for the sky, and we were reaching for things that I think didn't exist yet. Uh, but the most recent iteration of this course, we've taken what we've learned uh, in the years that we've tried to design a course that that we've envisioned, and we have settled on an existing set of technologies that we're using now. Let's see if I can enumerate them. Uh, it's Canvas as mm-hmm. the LMS. 
Inscribe as the online discussion, Zybooks as the online interactive textbook, and the Zylabs as their online coding and auto grading uh, utilities. Playposit for labs. Playposit for labs, so we can make those videos interactive. And I think that's the that's the stack that we're trying to stick to right <laughs> now, and we're trying to resist in, including any additional technologies because it does add a lot of complexity to the course. And we're trying to keep this simple, scalable, and translatable to any other institutions that want to use this. So to give us some background on this course and its history, the story's history, we have Jill Roeder, who is one of the managers over in our... Um, I'm actually a principal instructional designer and I'm under IDNM. Well, I know you're under instructional design and new media team, the team that we're on, but like, it's so confusing. You do such cool projects <laughs> that are out on the outer edges. Yeah, I'm currently working on the Dreamscape Learn virtual reality project uh, for the biology curriculum. You are the archival specialist of CSE 110 on the Instructional Design and New Media team. So we've invited you to give us your historical perspective, also to gush about Ryan and Phil, because who wouldn't? And so I'll just kind of turn it over to you to tell us your involvement in this course and a little bit of the history. Sure. We started working together, Ryan, Phil, and uh, I, and a, a bunch of other instructional designers. And we'll get to, you know, who the cast and crew was in a minute, but this was back in 2016. It was the second course, I believe, that I had designed for the Global Freshman Academy, which was this open scale initiative in partnership with edX, you know, and, and ASU. The sheer magnitude of what an ambition of what we were trying to achieve and it being the second course that I was working on in my time at ASU, all of that taken together made for a very interesting experience in all of the best ways you could imagine. So we met Ryan and Phil. They talked about you know, they they came with an agenda to the meetings. We had our agenda. They came with theirs. They were extremely well organized and they had a very clear vision for what they wanted to do and how they wanted to reach learners worldwide, all stripes, you name it, and really have that inclusivity in the discipline in terms of the types of learners that you would see and retention in mind. That was the first part of that working relationship. Uh, I would say the second part is that they embraced the fact that there were constraints in the learning management system. There were constraints in terms of budget. Uh, originally, they wanted to have this course be a year long. We compromised at 15 weeks. Oh, we've got it down to seven and a half weeks and five and a half weeks in the summer. Yeah. I mean, I don't know who that caters to, but it caters to, to somebody because the seats are filled and we offer the 15 week yeah. too, and they still choose the five and seven weeks. So Everyone I don't know. It feels torturous. In and out as <laughs> possible. That's all I can say. I just remember, you know, the shortest distance between two places is to not go. <laughs> if you're thinking in those terms, and if you're thinking of a student uh, who is enrolled at ASU versus the Global Freshman Academy, where these were not matriculated students, they were either looking for transfer credit or they were looking for professional development, or maybe they were looking for credit for whatever reason, but they weren't enrolled in Arizona State University. Their time was a little bit different. But the idea, like you're saying, Mary, is that it's really difficult to compress all of this content and concepts into a five or seven and a half week period in a meaningful way. And that is, is a huge challenge, I think, for the faculty to reconcile. And it's challenging for the students to keep the pace. It is. I think it's hard for everybody. But I also like that we offer the options so that if you are that kind of student and you have seven weeks, five weeks to hustle and get it all in, go for it. Or maybe, you know, previous coding experience. And so that those baseline mm -hmm. foundational concepts aren't as critical because you already have them. And so, yeah, it's just, you know, choose your own adventure, which I appreciate. And we didn't do anything accelerated in the universal learner co courses. Those are still 15 weeks. It's just the ASU online where you have additional options. Yeah. 
And I think that that's really important because everyone's coming at it from a different experience level with their own, you know, bringing their own knowledge, skills, and, and abilities to the table and also their own drive. One thing I will say is it didn't change the course. Like the course is the course. No, no. The content's the content. The assignments are the assignments. Nothing's changed if you join the seven week to the five week to the 15 week. You just All do of it. them are the same. You just do it. Right. When we first started working together in 2016, we quickly realized that we were going to have to mobilize the entire instructional design team and the web development team and the new media team. And they were doing field shoots and we were figuring out, well, we can't send them to England to shoot at the museum there, but we can green screen. And we had to mobilize a lot of resources. And given that Ryan and Phil's enthusiasm was so infectious, people, they were on board. They didn't see it as work. Oh, that's because they do so much work, right? Like when you said they show up with an agenda, they don't only show up with an agenda. They show up with a list of things they had written for themselves to do and then how they did them all. And now they have another list that they're working on. Like they just never stop. It's amazing how much passion they have. There was no saying no to them. There might have been levels of yes where it was not now necessarily, but just that sheer encouragement that they gave to us. We believe Mm -hmm. in you. We believe in the team. That was something for me, especially being so new at Ed Plus, it gave me the confidence to say, all right, we're going to do this. Hands down, we're going to find a way to get it done. We've never done CSS in the open edX environment. We had someone on staff, Kristen Bouchong, who was amazing and awesome. And she was able to facilitate that piece of it. Someone else was responsible for making sure all of the readings got in. Someone else handled the videos. Everybody just banded together. And what we ended up having to do, and this is where I kind of came into it, or one of the ways I came into it is it had to look like it was built by a single hand. Mm-hmm. So I put my developmental and copy editing and instructional design caps and project manager caps on. And we had our meetings. We made sure that things, you know, it was a well-oiled machine. Things were moving through the pipeline and that the course itself was as clean as possible. When students came into it, it looked like it had purpose in its design. It looked like the time was taken to really just get it all right. And you don't always have that latitude when you're designing courses. So it was really a unique situation. You might call it a perfect storm, but a lot of things came together and it was intense, but it wasn't, in my recollection, down to the wire where you were wondering if it was going to happen. We knew it would happen. We just were mobilizing to be able to make it so. Well, Jill, it's been my distinct pleasure to have worked on this project. So thank you for tipping me into the project and and allowing me the opportunity. And thanks for sharing your perspective and the history. Yeah, I was really happy to be a part of it. And I'm really glad that the course is in uh, your wonderful and capable hands and that the legacy and life of it is uh, going to be carried on into the future. So thank you very much for including me. So when we first started designing this class, when we were asked to develop it, we were not entirely sold on online education at the time. So we kind of went into it with, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it differently. And I think we, I don't know if we still have it, but we wrote a manifesto about (laughs) what we wanted the experience to be like. Amazing. (laughs) And, And it was really like, we started with, what is the ideal student learning experience? And it's me or Phil and a student sitting right next to us. And how do we guide them through learning programming? And then how do we get that from, okay, we don't even approach that in a classroom. How do we approach that in an online format? and make it highly interactive and stuff like that. And at the time, we didn't have like built-in tools in the platform we were using, which at the time was edX, to do like interactive coding exercises. We didn't have like PlayPosit for making the videos interactive and, and all kinds of things like that. So we found some tools that were free and we built a bunch of stuff in JavaScript. Phil built a bunch of stuff in JavaScript. I didn't do any of that. <laughs> we contracted with some companies to build things custom and it was a huge endeavor. And then a few years 
later, we ended up working with a different company that had, in parallel, been building a lot of the tools that we wish we had had when it started. And probably if we looked a little bit closer, it would have they would have been there, but not at the right price. So things have converged, which is, has really been exciting to see. And we've been trying stuff out the whole time. So we had used a different company for our auto grading and had tried a bunch of different things to do that. And really, we're always looking for whatever is the next big thing that's going to make the student experience better and the scalability and support for students and their learning outcomes better. And that is what Zybook did. It sounds like that was where I came in was because I love Zybook and I've been promoting it across campus. It's one of those interactive textbooks that makes learning kind of fun and you get immediate feedback and everything you do is right there. And then you guys were like, yes, it is all in the Zybook and we want to put all of our stuff in the Zybook Mm -hmm. too. And that was just like a whole other level. So (laughs) it was so cool to be included in that. But tell me, what are the highlights of using Zybook? We know it's an auto-graded interactive active software, but what else does it do that it enables you to fulfill your manifesto? Well, they have a particular philosophy that they follow in the design of their learning activities. And what's the set of words that they use? Many it's, small programs? Well, not just the many small programs, oh. but the say, show, show do. do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they break the content down, and this is just what they do with their normal interactive textbooks. They break the content down into these small topical chunks where they say in in a little bit of text what they're going to talk about next. Then they show using some sort of interactive uh, that the student can engage with. And then they ask the student to do something that gives immediate formative feedback. And if the students aren't demonstrating knowledge, they get immediate feedback and they can immediately go back and re-engage the interactive or re-engage the, the text. So we really liked that philosophy. They kind of built the tools and showed us a proof of concept of what it was that we were trying to do when we wrote that manifesto of what would it be like <laughs> to sit with a student one-on-one and walk them through piece by piece, topic by topic, you know, demonstrate a topic to the student and ask the student to then demonstrate your understanding of that topic. So that's the number one thing that we really liked about it. But in addition to that, they made their textbooks really easy to edit and modify. So things like reordering chapters, reordering content within chapters, placing rich interact, not, I mean, not necessarily interactive, but fairly rich instructor notes in line in the text, the ability to write custom content in their text. So we now have a textbook that we're using, which is a combination of their original text and about 40% of it is custom content that we ourselves wrote. Mm -hmm. And it merges seamlessly. The students don't know when they're transitioning from content that was written by the Zybooks team to content that we wrote. And then the ability to inline all of our lectures, the videos are inlined, and the readings are inlined, and the formative quizzes and assessments are inlined, and the coding assignments are inlined. So the students don't have to jump from, say, Canvas to a textbook to a coding environment to a submission system, which was what was happening before. We have a streamlined environment and a much more linear flow for the students to travel through the content of the course. So that was huge set of um, concepts that Zybooks put together that was really compelling for us. Okay, Mary, I keep hearing this term inlined. What does that mean? Oh, you mean like the content in line? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So, you know, there's learning management systems. Canvas Mm -hmm. is the one that we primarily use. Mm -hmm. And then there's often these other technology pieces that branch off of the learning management system. Mm -hmm. And that can get kind of confusing going back and forth and back and forth. You might miss something or not know what the order was because you jumped ahead when you went to a different spot. So because this is such a content rich course and it's really important that the students stay on the path, they've moved everything into the interactive textbook. So you go to the textbook and that's where your course lives. For a couple of exceptions, but primarily it's all in the Zybook. So any of the lectures that they've made, any of the interactivities that they've created, all of that, their instructor notes, little guides for the students, the support system. So Inscribe is another third party. They worked with Zybook and made sure that the students could access their discussion board inside the Zybook. And that's mm-hmm. not typical. Okay. So they're kind of, it's kind of become the source for all of these different third party apps and the course in general. Absolutely. Cool. One book to rule them all. (laughs) (laughs) 
are able to assign the reading activities as an assignment and have them do participation grades for that. So rather than like hoping and wishing that the students will go home and read the textbook in between classes, we can actually assign, hey, you need to do these activities and the activities are formative. So they're going to give you the answer eventually or, you know, lots of feedback so you can get it and then come to the in-person lab section for the hybrid one or do an interactive video for the online version of the class and then do the homework assignment independently. And we can grade all those things and see whether students are regularly engaging with it and they get credit for the time that they're putting in and get tons and tons of practice. There's hundreds, hundreds of activities that the students are being asked to do, which is a lot of work, but we hope that they're getting like this muscle memory for being able to write and write code and solve problems and uh, work with these programming principles so that we're laying a strong foundation for the next class and their curriculum that follows so that they, they don't have any trouble picking up any of these new skills. So from my perspective, this sounds like a lot, right? There's This course lives everywhere across ASU. There's tons of students in these courses. There's tons of assignments within the course itself. There's got to be times where students have questions. How do you, how did we, how is this course able to manage the scale at which this runs and still fulfill your manifesto? So the, the support system was something that we wanted to purposely define from the get-go. When, when we first started, we just had the edX discussions, which were really terrible. And the reason why is because a student would go and they would have a very poor search tool that would give them basically every article that's ever been written in the thing and not even when you typed in a whole bunch of stuff. And then as instructors, we were getting the same question 20 times every day. And students weren't searching for other answers from other students. So what we'd figured out was a tool called Inscribe, another third-party tool that has a really strong community and threading system. And it also has a suggestion system, which is the best thing ever. And we somehow, I'm not even sure how this ended up happening, but we <laughs> we got them to work with the Zybook company so that at the end of every page, at the end of every activity, there would be a link that says need help. Students could click that. It would auto-populate the topic bring them to a suggested list of commonly used discussion threads. And then if they don't find the answer there, they can start a new discussion thread. And as they're typing, it's giving a second round of suggestions. And we went from having 30, 40, 50 questions per day to 10 or 15 and a whole order of magnitude, many more students in the class, right? So we're doing less work. Students are still finding the answers and we're seeing in the analytics for the community thousands, literally thousands of views per day, but only 10 or 12 questions per day. Super effective. Super effective. Wow. I mean, just a huge, huge thing to have those two partners come together and work that way. Yeah. And I've seen it. It's all in line. Like when you click the need help button, it takes you directly to the conversation about that assignment or that activity. It's already sorting the students. So they really have to do very little work. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And, uh, and it makes this really easy to sort of help these students and find who, who uh, needs assistance. But it's a living document. So we're, we're mm -hmm. carrying the community between semesters and modalities. So we've got the same community, the same giant discussion community is servicing our hybrid students, our online students, and it's been running since last fall. So it's got this huge archive of questions and answers where Phil is putting in an incredible amount of work to curate them so that it's a quality community. True passion project, by the yeah. way. That's <laughs> yeah. a lot of work to do. It's an insane amount of work to do. But it'll pay off, you know, totally. eventually when it's built up all the way, it's going to require very little additional effort. So true. Absolutely worth the time. Yeah. I, I do think that Inscribe has probably been the most effective component of the help system that we built for the course. Uh, but I do think that you should also point out that the structure, the hierarchical help system that we sort of envisioned and that we've implemented uh, started with this idea of level zero help, which is the assignments and the content should be self-explanatory. You know, if students are, are coming to us and, and saying, I don't understand what this is asking me to do, then we should address that directly at the content level. And again, because the Zybook is editable by the instructors, we can do that. And we've done that in the middle of a semester. We've oh, yeah. gotten feedback from students that this doesn't make sense and we can go in and, and make changes to the textbook live during the semester. And Amazing. 
and only the first two students who had this problem see it as a problem and the rest of the students don't know it it even existed so that level zero concept i think is something that we've leveraged effectively after inscribe we also have uh what we call study hall so we've leveraged graduate TAs and undergraduate TAs who hold what might be called office hours, but we call them study hall. And we strongly encourage the students to attend the study halls on a regular schedule and offer that as the place where you should be when you're doing your homework. If you don't need help, it's fine. You can just do your homework. But if you are working on your homework and you get stuck and you feel like you need help, it's nice to know that there's someone here right now who can help you. I don't have to necessarily engage the inscribed community and hope somebody has posted a question that I can find the answer to or, or post a question and, and wait for a, a turnaround cycle. You can get immediately help. And I think that's been pretty effective. We've collected some metrics on that. And then the long tail of that is the instructor office hours. There's always the opportunity to come to the instructors during office hours every week. And usually what I like to do in my instructor office hours is sort of push students beyond the content in the textbook, engage in concepts that, you know, maybe are a bit of a stretch based on the material that we're exploring in in the course and aiming at what might be coming after a course like this. Mm, Lovely. So we got to the ticket system. Yes. No, we didn't talk about the ticket system. Well, that's like my favorite part. Honestly, I wish that we could figure that out for everybody because this idea of the tick, I'm going to let you guys talk about it. It's so rad. That, that's aiming at the future, right? That's, Heck yeah. yeah that's yeah. the frontier. Yeah, this is our... So the, the ticketing system happened because the Zybook has so many activities and they allow us to look and see from a, a data dump what the current status of every student is in the class. So I can see, you know, if Susan has done activity three on page 12 in chapter four, Right. And and see how long they spent on it. Right. Which is is really, really unique in terms of tooling and data availability and stuff like that. What we were doing is we found out very quickly when we first ran the class and we didn't anticipate this, that when a student in a normal class, when a student asks for help, if they ask for help in an online forum, you have to sort of bounce back and forth with them about what it is exactly that they're working on and what their current status is and stuff like that. And often it's something like, hey, I'm having trouble with problem four and um, I'm getting this error, right? And usually it's a summary that's about as short as that. So they don't tell you like what the error is or what the code is that they're doing or anything like that. So what we were doing is we would say, okay, I'm going to look at, I'm going to take the student's name. I'm going to go into the Zybook. I'm going to look at their current submission, which is super cool and see exactly what they're working on. So rather than asking, I can just go and look, see what it is that their current status is, and then shoot them an answer, right? So that was very successful. That was going great. Phil started going through and uh, he would page through each of the assignments and look for the students that are incomplete and they've been spending some time on it, right? And, and he would start sending proactive help to these students and saying, hey, it looks like you're stuck on this thing and stuff like that. So to make that easier, I set up a, a little server in my house that pulls the data from the Zybook every half hour. And it looks at everybody's assignments and how much time they spent on it. And if it's longer than half an hour, if they've spent more than half an hour and their score hasn't increased, then I know that they're stuck. Right. And then I just say, uh, I have it submit to a, have this little script that submits to a Google form and it is a little ticket that says, hey, this student is stuck on this assignment. They've been stuck for this long and, you know, go and help them. Right. And then we just go, we watch a, the, the spreadsheet fill up and whenever we have free time, we go and email students and, and stuff like that. And this is like a prototype for more proactive help system, right? Because your workflow was several minutes per student, finding students, figuring out the students. Now it's being pushed to us and saying, hey, this student is in trouble and needs some help. It needs a lot of tweaking and it needs a lot of user help. And we want to get, instead of just me and Phil, but the entire support team of all of our TAs and stuff into this ticketing system and be really proactive about it and say, we want to get all of these students that are in trouble and they're not asking for help because a lot of them won't to have the experience of what would normally be like us walking around a lab where you're looking over shoulders and you'd see a student that has like struggle face and they <laughs> that you can tell that like the pressure is just just about to they're just about to snap or about to give up and you're like oh what you working on what's going on here nice. right? and you want to have that conversation we want to have that's part of the manifesto right how, yeah. what would you do if they were sitting right here so how do we get that in online and and this was kind of a surprise because we didn't plan for it to happen it was just something that sort of emerged out of 
availability of tools. Absolutely. And, and your um, innovation. Like <laughs> Truly. I like it. Digital struggle face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's so cool. And it's actually pretty good data, too, because in Canvas and instructional designers, other faculty members, you're probably like, time on task. Is it really true? Because if your browser's open, like the time's not accurate. But Sam over at Zybook confirmed with us that it's like a 10 minute or oh, something like short, that. It's even shorter. It's 30 seconds. So oh it'll my time gosh. out so after just, 30 seconds of yeah. activity. Yeah. It's kind of amazing because of the level of interactivity in the book, they actually can measure that by click. So that's yeah. so amazing. I love them. I think that system has had some interesting effects on the students as well. Uh, students don't anticipate that we are proactively looking at what they're doing. They don't think you even notice or care because they they're in think this we huge can. class. They, they, right. and, and because the hybrid version of this course is partly online, and of course the online versions of this course are completely online, and students expect to be sort of alone in an online course or in the online portions of the course. So when they get an email from an instructor saying, hey, it looks like you're struggling on this assignment, we get some interesting feedback from some of those <laughs> students sometimes. You know, occasionally we've gotten like, this is creepy. Like, <laughs> I, I didn't know I didn't know that you were able to see the work that I'm working on when I'm working on it, and I'm not really sure how I feel about it, but your feedback was super helpful. Thank you. <laughs> so, And I think it has this effect on students that, Maybe they feel less alone in the course once yeah. they once they know that someone can see what they're doing. And if someone's taking the time to look at what they're doing, that shows that someone cares. Mm -hmm. you know? and I, so I, I think there's motivation. a lot of right positive reinforcement going on here. It's anecdotal. We don't have a lot of data on that yet, but this is my suspicions. We'll figure out how to dig the data out at some <laughs> well, point. Well, <laughs> qualitatively, looking at your evaluations, because you have shared your evaluations with us, and they've been glowing for the most part. I mean, there are some that have many things to say. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, overwhelmingly glowing in reference to the experience. For an online class to have so many connective type of statements, it's a really wonderful thing to see. Even the negative feedback is helpful, right? Because it's it's constructive, and we totally. we want to know. It's always very challenging, even in a on ground class, to know what the students are experiencing in their seats, as opposed to on the side of the instructor table or things like that, and what their what their true experience is. Because you plan it and you design it and hope that they're going to have a certain experience, and then. Getting the feedback at the end of the semester sort of helps you confirm or figure out where the holes are and stuff like that. So it's always good to get even that negative uh, feedback and, and hear what students need. And one of the things we're doing this year in the hybrid class, the hybrid class is built so that it's basically kind of an online experience. And then they come to an in-person lab, but that's run by uh, graduate teaching assistants. So they don't actually see us very often at the beginning of the spring semester we did the first introduction lab that helped a little bit, but they're still like more Phil and Ryan. We want to see, <laughs> see more. And I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what we're what we're going to try this fall is uh, is a community day and an optional big in person lecture thing to try and close the loop on sort of what students are struggling with right now as a community and do some like enrichment and fun programming activity stuff. It's not going to be like a lecture. It's more going to be like puzzle day, muddiest oh, points review. Here's some programming news. We don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be something that's more enriching than it is mandatory and I don't know what heavy cognitively, yeah. right? Like yeah. it's just meant to be fun and connective. It's, and yes, it's meant to be fun yeah. and connective and motivating rather than like sit and listen to me for an hour and a half, right? Which is just not your personalities anyway. So I couldn't <laughs> even imagine like. <laughs> Would that be streamed? Are you going to stream these events? Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to do uh, we're going to do them uh, through a, a live Zoom session and record them and have a big, um, hopefully not a lecture hall, but more like a flat pod based workshoppy area sort of thing. We'll see what we can get and how many how big we can get it. And that's the hope too that we can share this experience across modalities in the same way that we share the experience in the inscribed discussion. Mm -hmm. yeah. The community day is a community day for all instances of the course that are running so now, cool. and hopefully, online students will get a chance to meet on ground students and build relationships. And, and yes, yeah. yeah, make connections totally. And for a sense of scale, the on ground hybrid class is projected to be two thousand students. We'll have another seven hundred. 50, I think, mm -hmm. in the online 
classes, uh, sections, and then probably another thousand in the ULC that is running. And they're all running under the same content, same structure, and they're all invited to Community Day. And they're all in the same community online, and all the support systems are shared and and all kinds of stuff like that. So so the idea is to capital letters teach programming at (laughs) at ASU to to as many people as possible in a way that supports them to learn as, as effectively as possible. And it's a true international community based on who's <laughs> taking these courses. Like, who knows who's going to be in these classes? Who would be in your community day? It's kind of a cool experience. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to tell you something funny. Okay. There is this student who wrote Phil at the end of this last semester. And Phil didn't even teach this year. So that tells you, like, people know it's Phil. They love him. They reach out to him. Uh-huh. Uh, and he responds back, by the way. So anyway, Phil gets this email from a student and then he's like gushing. Like, I wasn't sure how I was going to do. It's my first online course. All the things, right? Mm-hmm. This student had a great experience at the end of it. And then he also threw in this little tidbit Easter egg. Phil has a varied size beard throughout the entire <laughs> class. I mean, it's epic to the point where another faculty member thought it was a different instructor right right it was so cool and it's like zz top style so Mm -hmm. enjoy the beard when you sign up we all did we miss it come Mm -hmm. back Talk about, if you don't mind, the Maze Runner. So so the, the Maze Runner came about because we wanted something, we wanted a hook for the class, right? So we wanted something where students, during their first hour, they will, their first hour with the class will experience programming, get hooked on it, and then use that as sort of their motivation for what can sometimes be a slog through the rest of the class, right? Um, we still want it to be engaging, but we want them to say like, Within that first hour, I can do this. I'm a programmer, right? So, so what we ended up with um, was the Maze Runner activity. And what the Maze Runner activity is is a um, interactive web-based, no-code programming tool where you write code that controls a little Sparky the Devil robot that has to run a <laughs> maze and get to his uh, battery recharging station, right? And it's all drag and drop programming, so you can pick it up in 30 seconds. But the challenge is you get a point for every level you complete where you get the robot to the charging station, but you get double points. points. Yeah, you get double points. Your points are doubled. Whatever you've earned so far are doubled if you win the next challenge without changing your code so the idea is Ooh, to enforce building upon it yes the I idea mean, is to generalized enforce, algorithm yeah, yeah nice yeah so um and, it, and it's really simple i mean loops are built in all you have to do is make decisions and tell it to go left and right and forward and back and stuff like that and you can just make a list of turn left go forward turn right and, and pass the first one but really it's about you know, is there a wall in front of me? Then I should turn left and then I should go forward and stuff like that and figuring out that decision process. This was built by ASU students. So this was something where in our computer science capstone program, students are partnering with ASU faculty and industry. And we had a team work for nine months to build this thing in a way that we could host it online and and do that. So it's not only a thing that's helping our students themselves, but it's an example of a product of what you can do with the knowledge that you build from this class, which is just so cool. It's meta. Yeah. Totally meta. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned that a lot of students from across the university take this class, and it's part of many major maps. What are the specific skills students come out of this class with? So I would say that the most fundamental skill and probably the most valuable skill that they come out with is problem solving. So in order to be successful in a course like this and subsequent courses, uh, you need to be able to take a problem specification, you know, written in plain English, break it down so that you can solve it in a series uh, or a sequence of well-defined, simple steps. And while that sounds easy, it's actually a really challenging thing for people to learn, the ability to break a complex problem down into simple steps, list those simple steps in such a way that they can be followed reliably and repeatably to solve the problem. So I think that's the most fundamental skill and the most valuable skill that students get out of this course. Uh, Second to that is, is programming. right? The ability to do this and the solution is a program. For us, that's written in the Java programming language. 
So, you know, leveraging fundamental Java concepts like variables and data types and expressions and decisions and loops and methods and classes to define a solution to a problem in the form of an algorithm that can then be run on a computer. And, and why do we want to run this on a computer? Well, because computers are fast, efficient, accurate, uh, repeatable. And so from my own experience as a programmer, uh, I try to apply these skills anytime in life that I have something that I have to do multiple times and I don't want to keep doing it. So instead of doing it multiple times, I will spend a little extra time to design and write and test and debug a program that does it for me. And I started doing this when I was in high school in algebra class. So in algebra class, and, and many of you probably had the same experience, you, you get this assignment at the end of the day, like do all the odd numbered problems with these pages, right? And they give you the odd numbered problems because the even ones have the answers in the back of the book. And, the odd ones <laughs> done, right? and what I learned quickly was like, it's like 40 problems and it's all basically the same problem, but they change the numbers, right? And so what I did after I, I did a few of these by hand, I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to write a program to do my algebra homework for me. <laughs> And of course, I had it printed out, and, and I turned it in, and my instructor was like, this is great that you print this out, but I, I need to see your work. <laughs> and so I went back home, and I rewrote the program to show its work. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you're hysterical. And, and I, I did struggle for a while, like, is this cheating? And I came to the conclusion that no, it's not cheating, because you cannot write a program. You cannot design and write and debug and test a program to solve a problem if you, you know can't it understand and solve that problem yourself because writing a program is basically telling the machine how to solve the problem. So you kind of have to teach the computer how to do this thing. And if you can teach algebra, then you, you must know, know algebra. Totally. That's awesome. So, so that's, in my opinion, that's the set of skills that you come out of this class with. And I think that that is a powerful set of skills that you can apply for the rest of your life. Agreed. People will hire you as an efficiency coach. Yeah, even you if you're not going to be a computer scientist or a programmer, oh, yeah. you're going to be working with computers and yeah. the ability to program them to do what you want them to do rather than just to use the software that may be available to do what they can currently do is, is a huge step up. And that, that skill set really applies to almost so many jobs, almost any job. I don't want to say any job, but monotony exists everywhere. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. There's a great website called automate the boring stuff in <laughs> Python, and it's fabulous because it's all about how to make all these programs talk to each other using programming. So I can get Excel, I can take a spreadsheet and run it through a script and it sends emails automatically and all kinds of stuff that is really hard to get them to do inside of their own tools, but you just write 15 lines of code and it starts spitting out stuff that would have taken me two hours to do manually, right? Just through cut and paste. And that is so common in so many like works, workplaces and things like that, even if it's not programming. We had a student come back after our fall run and they said that they work for the library and they were doing a project to figure out what books to put on the shelves and how they to have limited them. shelf space. Because they have limited shelf space. Do you remember the details of what they were trying um, to do? I remember some of the details. So, and, and the library was under construction at the time. And so they had especially limited shelf space. And most of their books had to go into archives, which weren't going to be directly accessible by students. So they were trying to figure out which books should we put on the limited shelf space that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, which is which is a combinatorial optimization problem. It's a very difficult problem. And with one semester of CSC 110, this student dove in and and tackled <laughs> this problem and, and actually solved it That's and awesome. wrote a program that pulled the the uh, user data and the student data on you know which books are most likely to be checked out and most likely to be requested and how can we optimize the shelf space that we have and that it. was exciting. It was really so exciting. cool. Yeah, and, and we get a few of those stories from students every every semester, which is always super exciting because they're most of the time they're not computer science students. They're people that are taking the class either because it sounds interesting or because they're like civil engineers and it's a requirement because they end up using some other programming language later, but they're never going to do programming as a career, right? Mm -hmm. And and they come back and say, you know, this actually helped me and do a thing that's not I never would have expected before. And that's always incredibly satisfying. It may be the closest thing to superpowers that are available right <laughs> now. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a, like a little incantation that makes the machine work for you instead of you working for the machine. I love it. So this course story ends with, you are now a magician, students. Take this class. 
not far off. <laughs> no, not far off at all. You guys are doing a lot of magic yourselves. I got to be honest. This has been an amazing experience to be part of this run with you. Thanks again, Jill, for allowing me to be part of the run. Thank you both so much. And the whole team, because this wasn't just us. This was... Oh, no. Partners at Inscribe, partners at Zybook, partners within Fulton. We had so many supporters that were part of this, and it's just going to be such a delight to see it continue to make the impact that it's already yeah, making. There was a huge, huge team in the initial uh, ULC GFA development that uh, did media production, and Chandi did software development for us, and um, so many people uh, that that uh, have had their hands in this, and it's been really absolute joy to work up absolutely everyone on all of these teams because it's like really empowering to have so many resources and a vision and so many people that are committed to the same values of education and and uh student outcomes it's it's really exciting and i love how you both see this as like this living breathing entity it's not you designed it you're done with it you just keep coming back to it your continued passion it shows and it shows and it's infectious it's catching so it's just so lovely thank you both so much thank you for having us uh okay let's wrap it up well that was a really interesting interview episode let me start that again well, that was great. <laughs> They're amazing. They are amazing. Just the thought, the forward thinking, the reiteration, their availability, their innovation to support our students. It's amazing. Their enthusiasm. Their enthusiasm. Just having them in everything. the room. It's just like, it's exciting. It's electric how, how passionate they are for, for this specific course. I can't imagine uh, with some other courses that they, they teach. I don't know, like that. With this specific course, <laughs> I don't know. Go back from exciting. It's exciting. You said it's exciting. <laughs> it's exciting. It's great. It's electrifying. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna get back to the uh, the source days. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Anyway, they're wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And so, what do we want these listeners to do? Well, if you have not already, go to Teach Online. Mm-hmm. Catch up if you are new to this series. There's six other episodes for you to listen to. Mm-hmm. So catch up. A whole other season. A whole other season. You don't have to be alone. You can be with us anytime. <laughs> Is this a new uh, feature of the show now? We right. can have uh, improv singing? singing. I mean, why not? We did talk about having a band last season. Mm. What was it? Cognitive sludge. God, it's so good. <laughs> we need to make freaking stickers. But truly, tune back in. We have so many neat conversations happening over the course of this next season, and we're really excited to share the stories from our faculty and our instructional designers. These guys are doing great work, and the students are loving it, and the faculty has a great time, and we want to make sure you all have great times in your design and in your classroom as well. And where can people listen to us, Mary? SoundCloud. Everywhere. Anywhere you have a podcast, we will be there. And if we're not, reach out to us. And how can they reach out to us? They can reach out to us at corestories at asu.edu. Let us know your thoughts, your dreams. <laughs> we'll probably ignore a lot of it. And no, I'm just kidding. We Tell won't ignore you. Tell us about our fluctuating beards. I don't. Oh, I do have a beard every once in a while. Just one hair. Is that a beard? No. That's just like. Well. I call it's it a, a witch hair. It's, it's it's your it's your it's how you want to interpret. <laughs> it's whatever I want to be. I appreciate that. <laughs> Core Stories is produced by the Instructional Design and New Media team at Ed Plus at Arizona State University. Core Stories is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You can reach us at corestories at asu.edu. If you're an instructor at ASU Online, tell us your core story, and we may feature it in a future episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>